you'd like to join with me, I'm going to be reading um, the English Standard Version, New English Standard Version of uh, Acts 20, 17 to 21. Acts 20, 17 to 21. Now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came he, uh, to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Please be seated. Well, I'm certainly happy to be with you this evening. I'm always very grateful for the privilege that I have to participate in worship with you and to speak uh, from this pulpit. And I'd like to amen Phil's prayer when he says, I'm grateful for the Broadway Church of Christ. I am too. I'm grateful for this fine congregation, and I'm grateful for the love that we have toward each other, which demonstrated today. Uh, for the love that we have for Christ and love which we have for the Word of God. Thank you, Danny, for the prayer tonight and for the fine singing stand. We're always very grateful for you and, and for your abilities to lead us in singing and all of our song leaders, for that matter. Uh, we're in the middle of our Sunday night seminar, and this is the seventh lesson that we have devoted to the preaching of the New Testament. I have prepared an outline for you. If you need one, please raise your hand, and some of these deacons will get to you and pass out a, an outline, and you can have a permanent record of what we're studying tonight. Uh, I try to follow the outline, although you'll find that I'll add a lot to it, and, and I sometimes will deviate from it as I, I see the need, but the outline basically is the thoughts that are coming with regard to the text itself and the important points that we'd like to develop. And we've had a number of sermons that we've studied out of the New Testament. Uh, being a preacher, I'm always interested in seeing how a sermon is developed. But I was that way before I ever became a preacher. And we saw how that Peter preached to the Jews and Paul also preached to the Jews, Acts chapter 13. We looked at his sermon. Uh, Paul preached to the Gentiles and the pagans in Acts chapter 17. Peter preached to the Gentiles in Acts chapter 10. We saw Stephen's sermon to the Sanhedrin in Acts chapter 7. This is the first time we're going to see a sermon given to Christian people. Uh, the sermons that we've studied thus far have been sermons either to Jews who were non-Christians or Gentiles or pagans, but here this sermon is toward Christians. And directly speaking, the sermon is uh, more directly pointed toward the elders of the church at Ephesus, which Paul has had a long relationship with. A big part of his work on the third missionary journey was in Asia, and he spent some three years establishing the congregation in Ephesus, and there from that point the word of God spread out throughout Asia. And so it was a very important spot and very important work and a very successful one, 
And as he is returning back to Jerusalem, he is in a hurry to get back before Passover. He has certain things that he wants to do and certain things that he wants to accomplish. And you can see in the writing of the book of Acts how that Luke records this hurried pace of Paul as he's headed toward Jerusalem. It's for that reason that he actually sends for the elders of uh, the church at Ephesus. And he asks them to meet them, meet him. Uh, he's in Miletus. And I've incorporated a little slide. I don't know if you can tell much about it. This sort of gives you his tracings and his path as he's concluding this third missionary journey. And he works his way on down to Miletus. You see it a seaport town, a very important Greek city, colony. And there, Ephesus is about 30 miles north of there. And you might ask, well, why didn't he go up there to see them? Well, he probably couldn't because of his travel plans. Uh, If he has this layover in Miletus, if he goes up to Ephesus, it would take him a couple days to get up there and a couple days to get back. He could very well miss the boat going on to Jerusalem. The boat is harbored there, and it is is, uh, unloading its cargo. It's taking on new cargo. And so in turn, it could leave at any time when that task is finished. Paul could miss the boat altogether and not be able to get to Miletus, not be able to get to Jerusalem and miss the Passover. So he sends and requests that the elders of Ephesus come and visit him. And that becomes the thrust of our lesson tonight, the sermon that he gives the Ephesian elders. It is a powerful sermon. It is a classic text in the pages of the Bible. We've often turned to it to understand more about the work and role of elders, to understand our responsibility toward them and their responsibility toward us. So it is a vitally important passage of Scripture. All of it is vitally important for that matter. But certain passages speak to certain subjects. And this one surely speaks to the subject and the important matter of elders of the church of the living God. As you can see from the outline, I basically have divided his sermon into two points. The first being Paul's work among them. He goes back and reviews that matter. And he actually carries as far back as Acts chapter 16, bringing us up to date on that particular matter. And then the second portion of the sermon is the charge that he gives to the elders, which uh, will carry us on down to about verse 35. And then as I always try to do, I'd like to look at some application, some things that we want to learn and study and see with regard to characteristics of the sermon which Paul has given. So, we have a lot to do tonight. It is a great passage of Scripture. And I invite you to study along and follow along with me as we do the very best we can in time we have allotted to study this great sermon of the New Testament. And as we go through it tonight, we'll try to talk about the major points, the highlights, of course, as we do. We'll try to analyze why did he say this, when, did he, when he said it, and what was his purpose behind it. But then when you have opportunity, I encourage you to go back and read this. Read these sermons again. If you haven't read Acts 2 in a while, go back and read Acts chapter 2. Or go back and read Acts chapter 10. Look at that great sermon by Stephen in Acts chapter 7. Review these great passages of Scripture and think about what the Word of God is telling us, how important it really is. The sermon is directed primarily to the elders. The elders, the word We get the word elder. It obviously carries with it the idea of an older, mature individual. The sermon begins really about verse 18. 
But in verse 17, he says, Now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, You yourselves know how that I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia. You see, these older, wiser men who are mature in the faith, this idea of being an elder, an older person, one meeting divine qualifications which God has given, a point that I'll make reference to in a moment. There in turn would be having the maturity, the spiritual wherewithal, to be able to make crucial decisions in times of crisis and make the right kinds of judgments. The work of an elder, of course, is an important work. And he begins to describe to them how he worked among them in this important matter. By doing that, he reviews the past. His work among them was that of being a servant. He served. And he uses a special word there. It means a household slave. I worked like a slave. Verse 19, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears tells us the kind of attitude that he had, the compassion that he had. He doesn't mind telling them, I served in humility and I served with great tears. There were a lot of tears that went on in the work of Paul as he was preaching the gospel in Asia. Paul was serving. Now there's another word that's very closely related to that, a different word found for us in verse 24, and it's translated ministry. If only I may finish the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus. Ministry means service or servant. So you have two words here. His word that he used in verse 19, doulos, which means a household slave, and diakonos, which he also makes reference to in verse 24 and verse 25. Verse 24 says, I was a minister. Now that's all a minister is. A minister is a servant, one who serves. A minister is not a leader. A minister is not a pastor. A minister is not a guy. God and God's people. A minister serves. A minister preaches the Word of God. A minister helps God's people understand God's Word. His job is to preach and teach the Word of God. Now, because we live in a day that denominationalism has had sway, we sometimes look at the work of denominational preachers and think that's what the work of a preacher really is. But the work of a New Testament evangelist, a New Testament preacher, a doulos, a household servant, was a man who devoted himself to the study and the preaching and the teaching of the Word of God. As we see Paul say in a moment, he did that publicly and from house to house. There'd be times when New Testament preachers, evangelists, servants, would stand up before God's people and discuss the Word of God and deliver the message. There'd be times when they would listen, a Bible class. There'd be times when they would sit with people and instruct them on the Word of God. There'd be times when they'd be out there in the community and challenging the community with regard to the faith that we have in Christ. The work of a minister is the greatest work that anyone can be engaged in. It is the greatest, most satisfying work of all. There was another very satisfying work that I had, and that was being a school teacher. It was very satisfying to see young people learn and the eagerness and the desire that young people had. But even that does not compare the gospel of Jesus Christ, the greatest work in all the world. Now, I know your job's a great job. Your job's an important job. Your job is something that is very important to the community and to many people, I'm sure. But it just doesn't compare to preaching the gospel of Christ. 
Paul said, I'm a servant. He didn't look upon him didn't look upon himself as being more important than anybody else. Didn't look upon himself as being a pastor and leading people. He was a servant who oftentimes found the need to tear, to tear up and cry, showing his great compassion for his work and the people that he served. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, you have a rather lengthy paragraph. I like to read it from time to time. But I won't be able to read it all. I'll begin 2 Corinthians 11, about verse 22. There he says, Are they Hebrews? Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they offspring of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one. I'm talking like a madman. With far greater labors, far with countless beatings and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews, 40 lashes less one. Verse 25, three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. Night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys in danger from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my own people, dangers from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, and danger from false brothers. And he goes on and on talking about life as a New Testament apostle. Life as a minister of Jesus Christ. In this particular passage where he is primarily to the elders. He says, now you know I served day and night. I was with you the whole time serving like a servant of Jesus Christ. It's another point that he says here, and it's an interesting word that they translate. It's found in verse 20. It's called shrink. He says, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable. And teaching you in public and from house to house. Now the word shrink goes back to the sailors of the ancient times, the ancient ships. And what they would do in stormy weather, they would roll down the sails. So as not to have to face the great winds and be tossed all the more. He said, I never rolled down the sails. I never did shrink. There was only one speed for the Apostle Paul and that was all out forward ahead. I think there's a great there in that for you and me. We ought not to be the kind of people that shrink and hold back, but we ought to be the kind of people that will be all out, teaching whatever is needed to be taught. And that's his point in the latter portion of verse 20. I didn't shrink from what? From declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house. I didn't hold back on any of it. Whatever you needed to hear, that's what I taught you. Now that's something that needs to be recaptured in our day and time. He preached everywhere, and he taught what the people needed to hear. You see, his first responsibility was to God. Not to make people feel happy, but his first responsibility was to preach the Word of God as God had given him the responsibility to do. He said, I didn't shrink back from teaching anything and everything that you needed to hear. And so he did. He taught the truth, but he also taught the needed truth, what was needed at the time. He says in verse 21, he taught, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. I thought it a little unusual there that he would put repentance before faith, but I've seen him do that more than once. You have to remember to whom this man preaches. This man preaches to Gentiles. This man preaches to pagans. 
These people are so steeped in their pagan mystery religions that the first thing he admonishes them to do is, you need to repent. You need to get out of that. He puts repentance first. He says, repentance toward God. I'd never failed to preach and teach what you needed to hear publicly and from house to house. And the first thing he lists is repentance toward God. I'm concerned about this matter of repentance. I feel sometimes that we've neglected the teaching of the Bible about repentance. We need to continue to preach repentance toward God. That is to change my life from darkness to light and from the power of Satan unto God. I need to change my wicked way of life. Now, I cannot slap someone on the hand for not preaching this or not preaching that when I fail to preach repentance. It may be the case that they're not preaching this like they should or they're not preaching that like they should, but I've got to preach repentance like I should. The Bible gives us all the responsibility to repent of our sins, Acts 17 and verse 30. Now God commands all men everywhere to repent, to get the sin out of your life. And if it's a habit, if it's a pattern, if it's a way of life, that is a contrary matter to the Scripture, get rid of it and get out of your life. And if you, as you've heard me say before, I say again, don't just think about doing it, do it. And do it right now, as the time is short and the day is fast passing away. But he also talks about faith, faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, that Jesus raised from the dead. He said, this is what I preach. I do not fail, I do not hesitate to talk about repentance toward God and faith in Jesus Christ. Now, if you drop on down there at about verse 24, he talks about the gospel, the gospel of the grace of God. And he doesn't hesitate to preach the gospel, how that Jesus rose from the dead, how that Jesus died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and how that we, through repentance and faith and confession, are baptized into uh, Christ for the remission of our sins, thus being obedient to the gospel. But you notice in verse 25 what else he preaches. And that is, he preaches about the kingdom of God. He says, And now behold, of you, among whom I have gone about proclaiming the what? The kingdom. We'll see my face again. It's a tender statement that he makes that we'll probably come back to as time permits in a moment, but his point is a very clear one. He's reviewing his work with them, and he says, I taught repentance toward God, I taught faith in Christ. I talked about and preached the gospel of Jesus Christ. I preached the kingdom, the church of Jesus Christ. I did this day in and day out, and I did not hesitate. By verse 22, he says, I'm bound by the Spirit to go to Jerusalem. I don't know, I don't think that Paul really knew what all was going to be there waiting for him. But he's saying, I've got to obey the teaching of the Spirit. You see, he was a man in the Holy Spirit directly. And now when I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the spirits, what my translation says, verse 22, I've got to obey what God tells me to do. God is telling me to go to Jerusalem and I must obey that. By verse 23, he says, the only thing I know of is that bonds and afflictions await me there. But that did not deter him. He said by verse 24, I've got to finish my course. I cannot let anything deter me, verse 25. I just wonder sometimes how, how many times we've allowed things to distract us. And sometimes they're good distractions. I guess I should say it a little better than that. They're good things that can distract us. And sometimes there are bad things that distract us. It could be this event. It could be that event, which an event 
or an opportunity in and of itself may be a good thing, but we should not allow that good thing to distract us from doing the will of God. I've often thought of First Corinthians, and the verse that I have in mind is verse 35. And in this particular passage of Scripture, he talks about this very matter. This translation doesn't use the word distraction. It probably gives a better rendering of it in verse 35. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. Now that undivided devotion to the Lord is what Paul's getting at. He said, I will not allow anything to distract me, Acts 20, 25. How many times have we been distracted and failed in an undivided devotion to the Lord? Oh, we have devotion to the Lord. We have faith in Christ. But we've allowed things to interrupt, allowed things to distract us and derail us and to get us off track. But here Paul's admonishing them. And he tells the Ephesian elders, I didn't allow anything to distract me. Nothing derailed me. I kept my focus, and I kept doing the very thing that God wanted me to do. We've allowed fear of criticism, fear of failure, illness, loneliness, job security, and on and on the list goes to hinder us in doing all that we need to be doing in the kingdom of Christ and for our Lord. We allow things to distract us personally and in turn keeping us from doing all that we can do. Paul is rehearsing his work with them. Acts chapter 20. And in verse 25 is the point of my consideration for the present. He's making the very clear point. And now I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. He's going to finish his course. Now he charges responsibility. And that's what a charge is. Paul will give a charge to Timothy. We'll read and study that on another occasion. A charge means to entrust with great responsibility. He's entrusting them. He's giving them a duty. He's giving them a great responsibility. And he calls upon them to fulfill that responsibility. I find myself in verse 26. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. That's why he's innocent of the blood of all people. Because he has declared to them the whole counsel of God. You see, he's taking a from Ezekiel chapter 3. Now, as you go back to that Old Testament prophet, Ezekiel, what an amazing man he was. What an amazing prophet. We had the time we'd go back and study this great, the great life of Ezekiel and what an individual, unique person he was for God. But it was, Ezekiel was talking about that watchman on the wall. And he says, now that watchman, if he doesn't sound the alarm when the enemy's coming, he'll be responsible for the blood of the people. And Paul said, I didn't hesitate to sound the alarm. I'm innocent of the blood because I told and I taught and I coached and I tried to teach with everyone these particular matters. And the reason he is innocent is because he taught the whole council. He taught everything that needed to be taught. None of us can really take our favorite passage and just camp on that. None of us can take our favorite passage to the exclusion of all others and say, I really like this subject. I'll talk about this topic and talk about it and talk about it. Though all of us have our favorite topics. We've got to preach the whole counsel of God. We've got to preach everything that God has given because God knows what we need. Now, we think we know what we need. 
Well, I think I need a lesson on this. But God really does know what we need, and he's given it to us in the pages of the Bible. And when we fail in this regard to teach the whole counsel of God, then we're failing to study the very things that God has given us, the very things that we need. By 28, he gets serious about the charge. And the first thing that he tells I want you to take care of this church. Take care of the church. Remember, he's talking to the elders of the church at Ephesus, and what a remarkable congregation it really was. And the first thing you need to do is guard yourself. Elders have that responsibility to themselves. He says, pay careful attention to yourselves. Verse 28. That's the first thing that he mentions. And they've got to do that. They've got to see after themselves. Continue to reestablish, requalify themselves day by day, year by year. It's not a matter of being appointed an elder and always being an elder. It's not like a Supreme Court position where once you're added to the Supreme Court, you're there for the rest of your life. But it is a matter whereby an elder qualifies himself by faithfully studying the Word of God and, and by continuing to live and apply the Word of God to his life, to his family. There he continues to do that, and he continues to qualify himself by guarding himself and looking to his own Christian welfare. You know, an elder's got to be a good man. First Peter chapter 5, verse 3, he's got to be more than just a good man. He's got to be a good Christian man. And in turn, to be an elder, to be a leader of God's people. But he doesn't stop there. The first thing elders do to take care of the church is to take care of themselves and to see after their own spiritual well-being. And that's the way it is with all of us. I've got to teach myself first, study the Word of God for myself. Then I'm in a position when I've obeyed the Word of God to help somebody else. Well, that's certainly the way it is with elders. They've got to guard themselves and to grow like they should. But then he goes on a step further and he says, I want you to guard the flock. You first take care of the church by looking after yourself and your own spiritual condition, growing thereby. And then you look after the flock. And he uses the word flock here as a shepherd would shepherd uh, the flock. And he um, makes reference to it in this regard to help us understand the work that elders do. It's like being a shepherd. In fact, if I had one word to summarize this whole section, which I view as the heart of his sermon to these Ephesian elders, it would be the word shepherding, to shepherd the flock, to lead the flock, to help the flock, to guard them. It is a dangerous job. Shepherds in the first century lived with the sheep. They stayed out there with them. It was not a glamorous job. It was a job whereby they would live with the sheep, and they knew the sheep, and the sheep knew them. Sometimes they'd have to protect the and the bear, Paul, uh, David would say. And he did. He was willing to subject himself to danger for the flock's sake. And he used this imagery of the flock. Many times in the Old Testament, God would talk about his church being his flock, an image to help us understand not only the people of God, but also the great authority that elders have over the flock of God. When he says they're overseers, he's talking about authority. Overseer means what? They've got to have authority. They have responsibility in matters of expediency. But they've got to have the authority necessary to carry out the expedient matters. Sometimes the elders have authority only in matters of example. That that's the only way that they could lead is by example. 
But the Bible says by using these very special terms, presbyter, presbyteros, overseer, a mature, elderly Christian man who so qualified himself according to the scriptures that he has authority in matters of expediency. Now, he does not expand this authority. Later, years to come, after the close of the New Testament in the second or third Christian century, elders began to expand their authority. They expanded the territory. And now they're not only an elder of this congregation, but they're an elder over that congregation. And the next thing you know, this thing has gotten out of control, and they're expanding their authority to such an extent they're vying for power, whereas elder in Constantinople would be vying power for the Western Church in Rome, and these particular matters would get way out of hand. Paul said, you have responsibility for this one congregation, church at Ephesus. You have authority over it. You are an overseer. Philippians 1 verse 1 and 1 Peter chapter 5 verse 2 talk about these particular matters. And he talks about this matter of qualifications, overseers. He says, now in which has made you overseers. You see, I'm studying his sermon out of Acts chapter 20 and verse 28 and he brings up this matter about the Holy Spirit and how is it that the Holy Spirit has made them overseers they are to take care of themselves they are to see after the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God what are the divine qualifications that the Holy Spirit has given given to us in 1 Timothy chapter 3 verse 1 through 7 Titus chapter uh, 1, verses 7 through 9, talk about divine qualifications that special men who meet those qualifications satisfy those particular matters, in turn may be established or appointed as elders over the local congregation of the church of God. And I have great responsibility. The Holy Spirit has made you overseers. It's through meeting the qualifications set out by the Holy Spirit that the Holy Spirit makes them overseers. People with authority meeting divine qualifications with great responsibility to what? To care for. Anyone who cares for someone else has a lot to do. Got a big job on their hands, a great responsibility. Sometimes the word episkopos is used as it is here, and it's overseer, but we've anglicized that word, and we've called it a bishop. They have a great responsibility. It is not a position. It is an office of work. They are conscientious, caring for the flock, the church of God. Elders... Bishops, pastors, 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 1 and 2, all these words are used in this great verse. It's a tremendous verse which Paul gives us by inspiration. Acts chapter 20, verse 28, they're shepherds. As I said before, if I had one word to summarize all of it, shepherding, overseeing the work of God, leading the sheep and feeding the sheep and binding up the wounds of the lame, keeping them from straying. And they're concerned about the whole flock. They're not partial toward this one or the other. They don't show favorites. They love the whole flock, each and every one. This flock, which has been obtained with the blood of Christ. It's not my church. 
It's the church that belongs to Christ. He owns it by He purchased it with his own blood. We had our grandchildren, and they were riding in the car with us, and we'd start talking about church, and one of them said, well, my church, and we'd stop and say, no, wait a minute. You don't have a church. Well, yes, I do. I go, oh, sweetheart, what you're trying to say. But really, it belongs to Christ. And then Carol and I are trying to help them see the church is not a building. That was another, of course, one's nine, the other seven. I'm trying very early to try to help them see the distinction between a building and the true church of the New Testament. The true church of the New Testament is people. It's the flock. It's not a building. We need reminding of that all of our lives. Because I've heard 30 and 40 and 50-year-old people say the same thing. The church doesn't belong to me. Church doesn't belong to you, it belongs to Christ. He purchased it with his own blood. He says, Now I know that first wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will men arise, speaking twisted things to draw away disciples after them. It takes just a few minutes for me to run those passages down and tell you the story of Hymenaeus and Alexander in first Timothy chapter one, nineteen and twenty, who came from the church of Ephesus but made shipwreck of their faith. For Gilus or Hermogenes, 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 15. Or Philetus, 2 Timothy 2, 17. And let's not forget Diotrephes, chapter John, 3 John and verse 9. All coming from Ephesus. Every one of them. Fulfillment of Paul's statement in verse 29. He's saying, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you not sparing the flock. They're not going to love the church like you love the church. They don't care for the church like you care for the church. They're going to try to destroy the church and devour the church as they possibly can. And uh, he says in verse 32 as he begins to wind this great sermon down, And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Now, if I were writing the sermon... Verse 32, I think I would have ended it right there. Well, then what do I know? I mean, Paul's speaking by inspiration. He's doing this thing just exactly right. He's doing this just exactly the way God wants it. I look at verse 32, and man, that's a great closing statement right there. But he's not so concerned about form as he's concerned about content. And he is saying, and now I commend you to God. He is saying to those elders, I am entrusting you to the care and the keeping of God Almighty. Chances are, I'm not going to say Paul didn't know what was going to await him when he goes to the city of Jerusalem. He says, I'm not going to see you again, and this is a final farewell, a final departing, so I'm trusting your care and your keeping to God in his all-powerful hand. But he not only stops there, verse 32, he says, and to the word of his grace. I'm giving you or entrusting you to the Word of God. I'm entrusting you to God and His care. I'm entrusting you to the Word of God, which is able. Notice the power of God's Word and what it can do. Which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. God's Word will build you up. It'll teach you. It'll lead you. It'll guide you. It'll help you through the difficult days. It'll encourage you through the wonderful days. I'm entrusting the care and the keeping of you. 
the shepherds, the elders of the flock at Ephesus to the care and keeping of God and to his word, the word of God, which is able, it's got the power to build you up and to exhort you among those who are sanctified and among those who are saved. Interesting thing that Paul does in verse 33. He says, now you need to be free from the love of all money. I covet no one's silver or gold or apparel. What does he do? No doubt shows his weather-beaten, worn hands. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities, verse 34, and to those who were with me. Why? In all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of our Lord Jesus, how he said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Now, we don't have a record of accounts. I'm sure there were many wonderful spiritual morsels that fell from the lips of Jesus that we don't have, but by inspiration, it's all the need to include this one. But you'll remember John 20 and verse 30, how that many other things did Jesus say in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written that you might believe. We have enough here within the pages of the Word of God to tell us what we need and to carry us to glory. He said, but I want you to remember something Jesus said. It is more blessed to give than to receive. Oh, how we need that lesson. Paul's charge. Paul's great work. He kneels down to pray. And what a wonderful prayer he offers there. There was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him. Being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. In chapter 21, if you look carefully at the original language, verse 1, it conveys the idea that they just had to tear themselves away from each other. They loved each other so much, they just had to pull each other apart because Paul was bound to follow the teaching of the Holy Spirit and go to Jerusalem. And so he left them. What can I learn from this? You see how consistent he is in his Christian life? I picked out two verses here which really highlight, highlight that matter. Verse 18 and verse 31. He consistently lives the Word of God every day and works for the Lord. Therefore, verse 31, be alert. Remember that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. See how consistent he is in living the Christian life? How that comes out in his preaching? Isn't that important for all of us? to live the Christian life faithfully, consistently. But notice how consecrated he is, verse 19. He's so devoted to the preaching, serving the Lord in all humility, with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. He said, even though adversity came along my way, I was devoted, I was dedicated, I served the Lord with all humility. He was not a boastful person or a person filled with pride, but he was a man devoted to the cause of Christ, and he was consecrated in that matter. Notice in verse 19 how compassionate the man is, and I made reference to that a moment ago, how that he said, you know, with tears, I served day and night. We can learn a lot by the kind of life that he lived. The courage of the man is amazing, because he said in verse 20, anything back. I taught everything that needed to be taught, Some subjects, I'm sure, they didn't want to hear. Some subjects came up that Paul would teach them from the Word of God, and they thought, you know, that's not my favorite lesson. But they needed it. And I'm sure a man who would preach with tears would be a man who had their best interest in his heart. 
I've heard some preachers preach, and I thought, you know, I think he's kind of glad people are guilty of sin, the way he talks about it. I've had that feeling more than once about some that I've heard. We need to be compassionate people. We need to be courageous people who are ready to preach and teach the Word of God in season, out of season, to reprove, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering and doctrine. But he's a man of conviction. By verse 24, you see that coming out in his, in his life so clearly. But I do not count my life of any value nor as precious to myself if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus Christ to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Now that man has conviction. I don't count my life as being precious. The main thing I count is finishing my course, doing what Christ has given me to do, living the kind of life Christ has given me to live. That's what I'm devoted to, the Christian walk of life. He has conviction, verse 24. Can we learn something from that? Can we learn something from his consistent lifestyle, consecrated to the work, compassionate in heart, bold and courageous in proclamation, filled with conviction and doing the will of God in good days and in bad. It is one of the classic sermons we have in the pages of the Bible, Acts chapter 20, and I commend it to you. If you're not a child of God, by repenting of your sins as the Bible teaches you ought, and confessing your faith in Jesus Christ, and by being baptized into Christ for the remission of sins. Or if it should be the case that I'm speaking to one tonight who's been unfaithful to the Word of God and needs to rededicate his life, Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, do it tonight while together we stand and while we sing.